Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Hey folks, just a quick announcement before we get rolling with this episode. I just uploaded 26 unique training plans to my website. They range from 12-week base building plans all the way up to advanced 100-mile training plans. If you're looking for a bit more guidance with your training, please consider checking out my offerings at zachbitter.com. That's Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com. Once on the site, click the link on the top titled Training Plans and see if anything fits your needs. I'm also looking to continue to add to this catalog, so do not hesitate to reach out with any suggestions. Thanks, everyone. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of HPO and another recording of our series, The Dietitian's Dilemma. So I'm joined here today with uh, Michelle Hearn and what will be a third appearance, I believe, from uh, Dr. Ted Naiman is coming back on HPO to help us dissect one of Michelle's chapters from The Dietitian's Dilemma that kind of looks into just like the application of, say, a low carbohydrate diet or just a diet in general. Like what are some things to maybe think about when you're trying to put into practice after deciding that you want to try it out or try something. And, and we thought uh, who better than, than uh, Dr. Naiman to break down some of the steps of kind of starting off, whether it be fitness or nutrition and kind of getting off on the right foot in what, what would be a sustainable manner or something that people can kind of wrap their heads around, especially if they're new to paying attention to their nutrition or paying attention to your fitness. So Michelle, thank you for joining me once again for another episode. And, uh, uh, Dr. Naiman, thanks for coming back on HPO for a third time. Oh, no, thanks. Uh, thanks. Good to talk to you, Zach and Michelle. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great to meet you, Dr. Naiman. I'm, I'm always excited to, to talk about nutrition. And I, I have to say, before I forget, Dr. Naiman, the, I was looking at just some of the, the download data on HPO podcast, and I'm blanking on which of the episodes it was, but yours is our top downloaded episode on the audio version right now. So you're, you're sitting at that top spot. <laughs> Oh, wow, man. Sorry about that. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> I could make an argument. That's why I still have a podcast. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's awesome. I, uh, um, it's always interesting to kind of see, I think, the, the viewership versus the audio downloads. Most people listen to it on audio still, but uh, YouTube also has, has some, a little bit more of, I would say, like a, uh, a range between like the ones that get a ton of views versus ones that don't. Sometimes it's just timing, I think as much as anything, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. So you were audio was the top download for that one. So, uh, I have a lot to, a lot of thanks for you for that, I guess. Um, but, uh, yeah, today we're going to chat a little bit about, uh, one of the chapters in, 
in Michelle's book, Dietitian Dilemma. So Michelle, you want to maybe kick us off with uh, just a little bit about that chapter? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, so I thought it was really important when I, as I kind of went through and discussed, you know, how a low carbohydrate diet, low carbohydrate, higher fat animals based diet can potentially benefit certain disease states. You know, I've read books before where you get really excited and then you're like, okay, now what do I do? <laughs> like, I don't know what to do. Like, how do I start to implement this? And I was thinking about this on my run this morning that um, unfortunately, a lot of people have what I call like a uh, paralysis by analysis, meaning you overanalyze, like you get so worried about trying to have this perfect plan or this exact way to eat that you won't make any changes. Or maybe you potentially start something and it's hard. Like the first week or so is hard and confusing and you just give up like, Oh, I don't feel good. You know, I've had people tell me before, like, Oh, I tried a ketogenic diet and that didn't work. And I, you know, I'll say, okay, well, how long did you try it? And they'll say like, well, over the weekend or for a week, <laughs> you know, and it's like, if you've had a disease for 20 years, we probably need to give it time. So I wanted to have a full chapter that kind of addresses what I call kind of like a three tier um, approach, you know, and I really broke it down into um, what I thought was a really good way to, to start a low carbohydrate diet. And I say, you know, there's no awards for staying in tier one, tier two, or tier three. And it's very different where I would recommend people start depending on your disease or depending on your health, you know, for like example, if you're very obese and you're very metabolically unhealthy, it could really benefit you to potentially follow a, a zero carb, you know, diet, very high protein and, you know, animal, animal fat. Where if you're very underweight, let's say you might potentially benefit from leaning more towards, you know, what I call the third tier, which is the animal based build out, which still has lots of animal protein and fat, but then you're going to introduce more of the carbohydrates your body can tolerate. So, so yeah, I'm so excited because I, we were discussing a little bit before we started recording, you know, I'm having people reach out via email and on my social media and say like, how do I know how much protein to have? What if I eat too much protein, you know, too much fat and and I feel like we're getting a little bit lost in the nuances. So I'm super excited to have, you know, Dr. Naaman on to really kind of, you know, help, help give his input too about like how you can, how you can get started. Because I do think people also are just, unfortunately, if you've been eating a very high carbohydrate processed diet, you really can't trust your body and you can't trust your own hunger signals. So I do feel like once you return to that way of eating the animal-based eating, you will be able to start, you know, trusting your own signals, but it does take some time. But yeah, I just, I, I'm, I'm thrilled, like I said, to have Dr. Naaman on and, you know, uh, get going with that. So. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for the, the breakdown, Michelle, uh, Dr. Naaman, uh, one thing that, uh, I wanted to bring up and for those that are, have been listening to the podcast for a long time, may have already listened to it, but if you are curious, the previous episodes were episode 20. So one of the early ones, then 181 and, I think it was 181 where we talked a little bit about your PE diet in that book when, when that first kind of came out and that would have been episode 181, the more recent one. You want to just share with our listeners though, who haven't listened to that episode or haven't followed you just kind of what your, what the idea is behind the PE diet and how that maybe kind of fits, fits within what kind of Michelle is talking about. Oh yeah, sure. Absolutely. So <clears throat> like really, really big picture for me, if you zoom out, and you, you know, you look at, you know, a hundred thousand years ago or something, humans were hunter gatherers. You just went out and you killed an animal and you ate the whole thing and you're getting enough protein and minerals and nutrients, but you're basically starving for energy. So, you know, as hunter gatherers, 
we were constantly looking for ways to add energy to our diet, anything at all. Like you just, you did not get enough energy. So we invented all sorts of technologies to add energy to our diet. You know, we um, stone tools to break open skulls and long bones and eat brains and marrow. And we figured out how to dig up tubers and we figured out how to harvest honey. And we're just constantly looking for ways to add more energy to our diet. And then we invented agriculture. We domesticated animals to make them fatter. And we figured out how to milk cows and we figured out, you know, which siphons a whole bunch of energy off the animal carbs and fats. And we grew all these grains and we started growing all these plant foods. And it was all just about adding more and more energy, carbs or fats, didn't matter, both if possible. Um, then you get the industrial revolution and the bulk refining of sugar and flour and oil. And now we can just suck the pure energy out of any of these plant or animal foods. So we've made all our plants uh, higher energy yield. Um, we've made all our animals higher energy yield. We've extracted all the chemical energy out of them and now we've diluted the whole human food supply with all of these refined carbs and these refined fats. And we've literally created the exact opposite problem where it's all just carbs and fats. Like we've massively diluted out protein and minerals in the human food supply. Protein's down to like 12 and a half percent of calories in, in the America versus, you know, 33% on average in worldwide hunter gatherer macro estimates. So we have this massive dilution of protein with refined carbs and refined fats. And it's economic as well, where protein's the most expensive macronutrient by a mile and carbs or fats are almost free. You know, you supersize your McDonald's meal and you get all the soda and fries you can stand for like, no, it's almost free. It's the, so now we have the exact, exact opposite problem. And for me, the way you start out is you just flip that around. And you just target the hell out of protein. So every meal centered around protein, every snack centered around protein, you're basically eating protein because it is so criminally easy to add carbs and fat to any protein in our society. You just, you know, you cook something in butter, you cook it in oil, you add a sauce, you, uh, you know, it's just like adding carbs and fat, any kind of side dish, carbs, fat, any kind of garnish any kind of cooking style like you're just adding carbs and fat it's it's just like a no-brainer to dump carbs and fats into anybody's diet and so because it's so protein diluted with carbs and fats and because it's so easy to add carbs and fats you really have to go the exact opposite direction hard and just target the hell out of protein every time you eat because those carbs and fats are easy to add and they're probably already added and you're literally going to have a hard time unadding them. Like nobody's just adding protein to anything. Um, but adding carbs and fats is easy. You know, you put dressing on your salad, you throw in some croutons. It's like, yeah, it's just so easy. So for the whole point of the PE diet is targeting the heck out of protein and trying to prioritize protein over non-protein energy, carbs and fats. So you literally go out of your way to focus on protein, hit a protein goal, and then sort of stay under a carb and fat limit. And I think that approach is really effective and it's really practical. And in terms of how you get started, that's exactly how you do it. You're, every time you eat, you're like, okay, where's the protein? What's my protein? You center everything around protein. 
And then you just shave down the carbs and fats to kind of hit your goals, you know, and, and, and that's my big picture take on it. And that's really the whole PE diet concept in a nutshell. Yeah, I think uh, to kind of give a little bit of a story about what you described, Dr. Naaman, I remember when I was in high school, I worked at McDonald's for a couple of years. And when the first summer I was there, I couldn't figure out why they were so strict about not kind of using the cups like like they have, the, you know, they give you those like plastic paper cups and they'd get so mad when like the workers would use multiple of those versus like either saving them or bringing your own. They did not care how much soda or whatever it is you drank from the fountain thing. And eventually I got around to asking and they said, well, that cup costs way more than even the, you know, like five or six refills in it. So they're like, we really don't care if you drink soda all day long, because at most you might cost our company like 50 cents if you're just guzzling it all day long. But if you're throwing away those cups all the time, that's actually cost the money. So it's like that cheap just refined carbohydrate source. I mean, I could easily drink probably a thousand calories worth of soda in a ship if I wanted to. And, you know, no one was going to care because it probably cost five cents for me to do that. Yeah. yeah and that's, that's, oh, go ahead. That's a good point. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, it's really interesting too. like having worked as a clinical dietitian for so many years, um, protein specifically animal protein has really been demonized as this like, I've, I can't tell you how many patients will tell me like, yes, I eat my whole grain pasta instead of, you know, beef, you know, when they're telling me this, oh, I don't eat red meat, red meat's bad for you. Oh, I only eat lean chicken. I only, and my experience is when people remove protein from their diet, when they say, okay, I'm not going to eat, you know, you know, steak or whatever, they 99% of the time are adding refined carbohydrates. And I've, in my personal opinion, it sounds like as well as yours, that's the worst thing you can possibly do. And it's amazing, you know, I, when I first transitioned, you know, to a really, really a high, um, I went completely carnivore for a month. I had my, you know, my health was failing. I couldn't run anymore. I was just, I was eating, this would terrify your doctor name. I was eating over 400 grams of carbohydrates a day. I was just, my health was a mess. I was afraid. I was afraid that if I ate a ton of protein that, you know, I was going to be sick, but I had tried the opposite and it didn't work. And within weeks, my health completely transformed of just eating beef and, you know, um, mostly beef, beef, butter, salt. And it, it was amazing how much, um, how much misinformation there is and how much dogma there is around everybody needs carbs. Carbs are good. Whole grains are good. Um, I even actually, I'm wearing, if you guys are watching or you're, you're listening on the podcast, you can't see, but I'm wearing my, you know, eat meat, repeat shirt that has all the animals. I was recently at the airport going through T TSA and a woman stopped me and said, um, you don't look like you eat meat. And I said, ma'am, that's all I eat. That's all. It, it's just like, it's, there's, there's this weird uh, misinformation and it continues to expound that if you're eating a lot of meat, that's bad for your heart. That's bad for your um, everything really, you know, and obviously we address this in the book, you know, between mental health and diabetes. And my, my opinion, there's no food that is better for your health than meat. Like you said, if we can start every meal protein centric with those, you know, and we, and I'd love to talk about bioavailability too, but yeah, I just find that so interesting and that I experienced that as well. When you work in different areas, like I, as a dietitian, we get free unlimited, um, hot chocolate, soda, you know, <laughs> coffee with sugar. But if you want to actually have like eggs or whatever, you have to purchase it. So it's constant, there's this constant influx of free fat and free sugar 
but not only is protein more expensive, but then it's also kind of, you know, kind of told that, oh, it's, it's just not very good for you. And if you have it, you should have a very small amount. Yeah, the, that really sums up everything that's wrong with the system. It's like it's uh, it's demonized. And, and like you say, I'm more worried about people, what people are eating that's not red meat. You know, what what are you displacing that with? It's almost certainly going to be worse for you. And the economic factors are just huge. Uh, you know, it's like McDonald's, the, you know, the that burger patty gets weighed out to the gram. Like there's no way you're getting extra protein. <laughs> um, and that's just the way our whole society is. You know, the, the cereal box costs more to manufacture than the cereal. And it's just, uh, uh, you know, and thank God, Michelle, that we got some RDs pushing back against this stuff. So <laughs> I really appreciate that a lot. Um, because, uh, we've been giving everybody the wrong message for a really long time and anything we can do to walk that back is great. Um, I, I think that uh, if everybody, like if I could just snap my fingers and everybody hit like, you know, 30% of the calories from protein or something, the, the entire obesity epidemic would just collapse. And I, I feel like, we just haven't done a, a good job as physicians and as RDs of um, highlighting that fact. And we just, we've really failed on that front. And uh, so that's, that's what I'm, that's my biggest message right there is just having people get their protein percentage up. You, you know, one thing I thought about when you were saying that Ted was uh, like, if I go to the grocery store and I buy like the fattest cut of ground beef, it's going to be less per or less dollars per pound than if I get the leanest cut. So it's like by removing the fat from that, which I could easily do if I just cook that the fattest ground beef and then sieve out the fat, if I want to, I could get that lean ground beef that they're selling me for three, four bucks a pound more at the store. So it's almost like the removal of the fat actually, it increases the price of the or if you, if you remove the fat and just give the protein, like the, the product increases in price. So you're actually like taking away, like if there's like a negative value in some of the, the energy sources, it's so cheap. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, uh, it gets even more dramatic when you look at uh, chicken breast and then when you look at mm -hmm. fish and then you look at like, you know, shrimp or lobster or just the, basically the leaner your protein gets, the more expensive it is filet mignon super lean super expensive all the way up and down the chain the the leaner it gets the more expensive it is and i don't have anything against these lean proteins but i think the fact that the leaner it is the more expensive it is really highlights just um how hard that is to do in our society and how easy it is to add carbs and fats it just makes everything cheaper yeah i think it's uh I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. It makes it tough. Like if you don't know some of these things, it's, I can see how people get tripped up in the grocery store pretty easily, especially when they're on, on a tight budget. Um, you know, one thing I did want to ask about the, just your approach in general was what most people are maybe thinking who are new to it, especially like, okay, I hit my protein goals. Now what's step two in really kind of determining how I do fill in that energy because you are going to need some energy. Obviously, if you're trying to lose weight, you need a little less as you're going to try to take that energy off your body. But 
uh, once people start kind of getting in range of a healthy body weight and they want to have quality workouts and stuff like that, if they're just mainlining pure protein, they're going to hit a hurdle from an energy scarcity standpoint. So what's kind of step two in identifying what fats and carbohydrate sources are going to be kind of optimal within that approach? Gotcha. Okay. That, that's a great question. And for me, <clears throat> Uh, it's really important to understand that skeletal muscle is supposed to dispose of, you know, 85% of the glucose in the carbs that you eat. And anyone who's, you know, severely insulin resistant or diabetic has way less skeletal muscle than they should. They have way lower glucose disposal than they should. They're probably not exercising uh, optimally and they probably have muscles that are filled with fat and glycogen already. So their glucose disposal in their muscles is gonna be poor. So now you're looking at just disposing of glucose in your liver, which kind of isn't gonna hold more than hundred grams a day for 24 hours, you know? so. So for me, the carbs scale up or down with skeletal muscle utilization of carbs. So if you're, you know, the average American does zero minutes of high intensity exercise per day, and you really can't be eating way more than 100 grams of carbs a day and dispose of it, you know, well, if you're not doing any exercise like that, like, like you guys are insane, right? You're ultra running, you know, like you guys are running, you know, we're a little well, different. We're not the like, average, the average, uh, yeah. Right. You guys just completely obliterate everything I'm saying, but, um, for the average sedentary person, you know, I really like a hundred grams of carbs as like, okay, you could probably eat up to that without causing any major problems, but you're, you're just not disposing glucose enough in your skeletal muscle to go over that. So I really like, you know, targeting protein, step one, gram per pound of ideal body weight or higher. And then step two is understanding what your carbohydrate requirement is and maybe not eating more than 100 net grams of carbs a day if you're sedentary. Um, and then going up from there if you're doing some really high intensity exercise, you know. Um, and, and, then, and then for me, it's basically like, uh, adding, you know, carbs or fats if you need to. But unfortunately, the reality of our society is that that protein you ate, if you can afford it, it probably came with enough carbs or fats that you might not need a whole lot on top of that. Like your 80, 20 ground beef, that's 99 cents a pound. It's already 70% fat. So you probably don't need to add a whole heck of a lot to it. You know what I mean? So it's basically how lean was your protein how hungry are you for energy? Um, how much are you exercising? But it ends up being, you know, a gram per pound of ideal body weight and protein per day, uh, hundred grams of carbs. If you're sedentary more, if you're doing a ton of exercise that might burn it. And uh, then in terms of adding fat, it's just how much fat came along with your protein inadvertently. Yeah. And I would like to, I mean, I think that's, excellent. And that's fantastic. Cause sometimes people ask me very specifically, like how many carbs should I have? And it does, it does depend because like, you know, Zach, I know you feel the same way that you're, it are when our training shifts, you know, we certainly have more like when I, if I'm in a very low training volume, sometimes I only have about 50 grams of carbs per day, even if I'm, you know, running 40 or 50 miles a week. But if we're doing 80 and the intensity is high, I definitely feel better when I have more carbohydrates. 
But for somebody who's really metabolically unhealthy that has tons of stored carbohydrates, like you said, an overweight person or a diabetic person, it makes so much more sense for them to focus on the protein. And I saw this a lot in the hospital, Dr. Naiman. Um, and, and interesting, you know, I've been a dietitian for 11 years. It's actually, even in the time I've been a dietitian, it's gotten worse, in my opinion, is I had many patients who were significantly obese, but malnourished. Like they couldn't even stand up and walk a few steps to the bathroom because they didn't have any muscle. They just had so much body fat. And when you watch what they eat or when you're talking about um, protein, you know, our current, uh, you know, I have a video on this, you know, currently are the nutrition guidelines in a psychiatric facility. We, we feed people up to 42 teaspoons of sugar a day. Diabetics in the hospital get up almost 300 grams of carbohydrates a day, type two. It's, I just, I, I don't understand. And I mean, I, I, I say that I, I do, it all is like money and, you know, all that stuff. But I think we really have to continue to push back because, you know, those car cheap carbohydrates and the, the fats, they don't have the amino acids and they're not going to, you know, stimulate mTOR. They're not going to help people build muscle and they're not going to help people regain their health. So I think we really have to continue to talk about how crucial it is that we, um, we prioritize protein. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit too about um, what proteins you recommend because, you know, you and I live in the Northwest. There's definitely a movement for everybody to eat, you know, soybeans and fake meat and peas and all that. So can you talk a little bit about how you feel about that? And just, Oh yeah, sure. Know? Well, first of all, yeah, I really appreciate your point about hospital food. I've worked in hospitals for 20 years and it's just, I'm always just shocked and appalled. And honestly, these people who are in the hospital probably have even higher protein requirements. Most people who have insulin resistance or type two diabetes, uh, are actually oxidizing more protein, um, using more protein for gluconeogenesis and need higher protein to begin with. Uh, our sarcopenic or osteopenic, so actually they've been triaging protein and not getting enough probably already. So it's just like more and more and more uh, important for those people. And, uh, and actually a really young, healthy person could probably squeak by with lower protein um, and these sicker hospitalized people probably need a higher end, um, protein. Um, and, and then your point about <clears throat> what proteins are the best. Well, we really know it's not, it's not even debatable. Like it's pure science that some proteins are better than others. Some proteins are more complete. They have a better spectrum of amino acids. And, and the fact, uh, the reality is that Animal protein is always superior to plant protein for humans because plant proteins have all the amino acids that you need to make a plant, um, but animal protein has all the amino acids you need to make an animal like human. So you get a much better amino acid spectrum from animal protein. It has higher digestibility. It has higher availability. It has a more complete amino acid spectrum. And we literally rank proteins based on all of these factors. And so you have proteins like egg white or whey powder, which is the gold standard, which is the most bioavailable and the most complete protein you can get. And uh, uh, animal proteins rank very highly. Unfortunately, your plant proteins are a lot lower. So there's a lot of problems with plant proteins. First of all, most of them are incomplete and you have to combine them to get a full spectrum of amino acids. Um, <clears throat> secondly, some of the, the amino acids that you especially want for muscle building and anabolism might be 
uh, represented at a lower percentage in plant uh, protein versus animal protein. And then there's a lot of fiber and anti-nutrients in plants that lower the digestibility and availability of these amino acids. So you're always going to get higher quality protein from animals than from plants. Now you can absolutely make things work from plant protein. You just have to go out of your way to eat more of it. And another problem there is that plant protein tends to come along with a fairly high amount of carbohydrate automatically. So if you're really trying to target protein and you're eating plants only, you might actually have to eat a purified plant protein, like a, like a rice powder or a, a soy powder or some sort of pea powder or some sort of plant protein powder just to get more protein without the carbohydrates that are attached to most of your plant protein. So there's a, there's a number of problems with plant protein. It's just inferior. Um, In general, the nitrogen content of plants is limited because, you know, like a cow can walk around and eat a million blades of grass and it's going to bioaccumulate and biomagnify all the nitrogen and it's going to biomagnify all the minerals. And so the cow is going to have a super high concentration of nitrogen, amino acids, protein, and minerals compared to the grass itself. It's very limited to uh, its root system and the amount of nitrogen and minerals it can dry out of the soil is fairly limited. So it's very um, diluted with carbohydrate, which it uses structurally, of course. Um, so basically just in general, an animal is always going to be better than a plant from a protein perspective. Yeah. I was going to ask about that and you kind of started to answer it or, or maybe completely answered it was just like, when I look at some of the research that looks at the bioavailability of plant sources versus pro versus animal sources of protein, when you do get the scenarios where the plant versions start catching up or get within a ballpark figure of the animal-based proteins, it's almost always some form of supplemental version where they strip away a lot of the fiber, a lot of the carbohydrates, and they combine them guessing, you know, multiple types of plant protein to get it complete. And then you maybe get up to, um, I'm guessing here by around 95% of what you get from like a pure animal protein source. And that almost just goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the, of the episode, though, where you're not going to walk into a grocery store and find like a plant protein powder that is relatively affordable for someone who is, you know, you, on, a, on a strict budget. So it's like if you want to say, yeah, you can make it work. It's like you can make it work, but you might actually end up spending more money making it work than you would by even finding the, the cheapest version of the animal based protein if your goal essentially is to, you know, keep your grocery budget low and get the most bang for your buck out of your protein grams is the way I've kind of seen it so far. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's always going to be more expensive and more difficult. And yeah, it's a, very few plant foods can even compete. Uh, soybeans, probably the best plant food we've got. And even there, you really want to process and ferment it and make tofu or soy powder or something that's even more concentrated in terms of the protein. Um, So yeah, it's just not as good and it's a lot more expensive. Yeah, I I wish I liked tofu. (laughs) That's always been the the hard one for me as like, yeah, I I get like tofu to a degree, especially if you're going to go like a plant-based version of protein. But I know for whatever reason for me, like, I, I ate tofu for a bit when I was in college and then I got sick once after eating it. And now I can't even like my stomach turns just like 
thinking about it. So that obviously that's an individual problem versus a, a, a societal problem, but uh, it, it, it is, uh, um, you know, it is interesting because I think like uh, you get some of these things that are a little more or, or a little closer, but they're also not necessarily something that most people are going to gravitate towards. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't eat a lot of that. I, I will say, though, that there are some vegan foods that are really high in protein, like tofu and seitan and wheat gluten and textured vegetable protein and all these things mostly made out of soy and things like that. And I don't really specifically recommend them for most people. But man, if you're vegan, I am begging you to eat the hell out of that stuff and to center your whole meal around that. If you're vegan, you want your whole meal centered around um, textured vegetable protein, tofu, seitan, any of these things, um, because that's actually going to give you just at least a, a, a half a chance of getting adequate protein percentage in your diet. And if you look at all the vegans who are really just killing it, who are bodybuilders or have great body composition or health, um, you'll, and if you actually can find these vegan bodybuilders who are posting like what they're eating, they're eating, you know, 30, 40% protein diets from all of these protein products. And I really think that if you're vegan, you want to go out of your way to do that. But yeah, it's expensive. It's not optimal, but still like my vegan patients, I'm like, please eat this stuff because that's your only chance. <laughs> and I think that's important. I do think I, I never want to be dogmatic. And it was, you know, when I was writing my book, I, you know, I read how not to die, which is a vegan book. I am, I don't recommend veganism to anybody. I think we are humans and we have a species specific diet that, you know, you thrive. I've seen so many people and I've interviewed so many people who shifted their health once they included meat, you know, once they finally got that highly absorbable creatine, carnitine, protein, B12, folate, zinc, that just really isn't bioavailable. I really feel like in nutrition, I wasn't taught about bioavailability, right? You know, what does that mean? That means just because a product has something, how much can we actually absorb? You know, like you were talking about earlier, soy, for example, you know, it's not, it certainly isn't as absorbable as like an egg or a whey. And we know rice protein and other things, not nearly as absorbable. When I was a very high carbohydrate athlete back in 2011, I, um, you know, I was eating so much oats and seeds and things that I actually became severely anemic from, I would imagine all the phytic acid that was in those plant foods. I was taking iron, I was taking lots of things, but we don't really teach that, you know, those plant products have phytic acid, which binds to calcium and iron. I, um, my ferritin was seven. I literally fell asleep on my keyboard. I typed a 12 page email. Of just <laughs> letters. Um, <laughs> I woke up to 12 pages of MS, you know, I had to get iron IVs. So, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, every species has a specific diet Our GI tract. Everything in the human body is designed for meat and fat. That's how we evolved. Um, you know, I wouldn't feed my dog kale. I wouldn't feed my tortoise steak because, you know, species specific. So while, uh, while Zach is certainly more open and to the, to veganism and vegetarianism, you know, my, my book certainly would steer you more in the animal based direction. But if you are going to choose a vegan diet, or if you have some religious preferences that, that push you in that direction, it certainly makes sense that you go out of your way to search out, um, those really high protein foods, because in my experience, there was a trend in the hospital too. Like we've stated, we're, you know, I'm in the Pacific Northwest that people want to order a vegan diet. So what does that mean? 
okay, great. Now I'm going to have a vegan cookie with a vegan sandwich and a vegan patty and a fruit and a juice. So I end up with a meal with, you know, 150 grams of carbs and 10 grams of protein. So certainly, you know, that's going to be a, a, a nightmare. And then you get all those anti-nutrients and sugar. So The Dietitian's Dilemma podcast series is made possible by our friends at S-Fuels. S-Fuels is both Michelle and my workout, recovery, and lifestyle product of choice. They don't leave our carb-craving friends hanging, but make sure they stay true to their roots by boasting a wide range of low-carbohydrate products to help anyone make low-carb living and performance much easier. Personally, I like to lean on their S-Fuels Life Mix and Revive in my morning coffee just to give me a little bit of extra fat fuel and protein to start the day. Their life bars I'll turn to when I need a protein packed snack on those higher energy demanding days. Their S Fuels Train product when I need a bit of extra fat for a long workout and their Race Plus to help keep liver and muscle glycogen topped off on my harder, longer efforts. You can check out their full lineup at sfuelsgolonger.com. That is S-F-U-E-L-S-G-O-L-O-N-G-E-R.com and enter promo code ZACHB5, that is all caps, Z-A-C-H-B, the number five, for 5% off your next order. Thanks for tuning in, and now back to the show. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. I think that uh, uh, every mammal has a diet it's uh, adapted to eat and absolutely animal protein should be at the top of the or the base of the pyramid or however you want to say it um, I'm yeah exactly uh, and I also totally agree with you I think a junk food vegan diet is literally the worst diet anyone could ever eat it's quite horrific uh, I'm just I have like some a lot of patients like from India for example and generations back in their family they they are um religiously vegan like and, and or or uh you know i was raised seventh day adventist and my mom is a devout adventist vegetarian and so like i i encounter people who i know i'm not gonna break through their hereditary religion which i'm actually strongly against and that's a whole different podcast <laughs> yeah. but um but that. basically for you know for these people i that's who i'm begging to like target protein because you know that's their only shot yeah that's uh, uh one thing i wanted to ask you about too ted was just this uh yeah i guess it started to pop up a little more at least on my radar was you get this kind of goofy scenario where having you're getting kind of that gram per pound of protein that you mentioned is a great way to likely create an environment where you're more satiated and likely going to eat less overall energy. And then if you're trying to lose fat, obviously that's going to come off of your body. Um, but we also see kind of a similar satiation effect or hunger suppression effect when you get very low protein diets, like less than 10%, I think if I'm not mistaken, so there appears to be kind of this, like this window where if you're like, say between 10 and 20% protein, where it's just like the perfect combination to get you to overfeed on carbs and fats. Um, so that's like one kind of question or thought. And then the follow-up would be then let's take a peek at this very low protein diet. And when I think of that, I think of some of those folks who are like, 
it almost seems like they're accelerating the same problem you'd get in like an elderly population where they get to a point where they're losing a lot of muscle mass, their bones are possibly thinning and they're highly at risk for like falling, getting injured. And then that being the reason that they end up eventually dying versus you're having a strong skeletal muscle system, a strong skeleton in their older age, which they're, I would guess more likely to have if they're hitting the higher end of the protein targets versus, you know, way at the bottom. Yeah. Okay. That, those are all really great points and uh, protein consumption and <clears throat> is definitely on a U-shaped curve and at very high protein percentages, we see humans automatically eating less calories all the way up to about 50% of calories from protein. Uh, but then also on very low protein percent diets, people automatically eat less, especially if, especially if you can get down to about 5% protein, which is your fruititarian diet of just, you know, 30 bananas a day or the all potato diet. If you can get to about 5% or lower, um, a lot of mammals just kind of give up on eating because they realize it's how kind of pointless it is. You know, like uh, Dr. John Speakman just published a study a few days ago where they, they drove mice and rats all the way down to, I think it was mice, well, all the way down to 1% protein. And these mice literally ate way less and lost a lot of body fat uh, because they just kind of give up. Like it's really almost pointless. And so a very interesting satiety hack is to eat the extremely low protein fruititarian diet. Um, I think that you could maybe pull that off if you're doing enough resistance exercise uh, to demand that your body maintain a little bit of lean mass and bone density. Um, but sort of in the same way that just by increasing protein in the diet, we see people get more lean mass and bone density, even without exercising, I'm worried that at these very low protein diets, you're just going to automatically get some amount of uh, osteopenia and sarcopenia that you can't correct just with more exercise. And it's probably going to be net detrimental to longevity and long-term health. So, um, and then of course, there's, a, there's this center part in the U where you absolutely maximize eating and you it's the optimal fattening ratio. And I'm just absolutely fascinated with the whole science of obesogenic rat chow and building these diets that's designed to make an omnivore mammal eat the highest amount of calories possible. And it seems to be at about a 10% protein with 45% carbs and fats equally. And you just get this perfect combination of overeating, especially if the carbs and fats are high energy density, like refined carb, refined fat, 45% each, 10% protein. That is going to be optimal growth ratio for a rat or a human or whatever. And then if you look at the list of human junk foods and you break down the macros, it just fits in there perfectly. It's like pizza and candy bars and little Debbie's and donuts and all these things are, you know, like 10% protein. And then the rest of the calories are 50, 50 refined carb, refined fat. And then you have all these cafeteria diet studies where we just feed human junk food to rats and mice. And you can basically just fatten any omnivore mammal with these ratios. And it's just so amazing to me that that's where we've, we've almost landed there in the, in America at peak obesity macros, almost, you know, if we just got our 
protein maybe one or two percent lower i think we'd like win a prize like for absolute <laughs> maximum fattening we're almost there we're <laughs> we're number one yeah that's really interesting about the the the, the very very low protein diets um and almost like when you say like giving up, is it almost like a, a species, like just, they feel like they're, they just don't even care anymore. Like you almost overdo it on carbohydrates. And, um, from being somebody who's tried many, many different ways of eating, including at one point, just eating fruit for a while, that is not only a digestive nightmare, that is a blood sugar nightmare. So if anybody's thinking about trying that, I highly recommend against it. Um, have you ever experienced that Dr. Naiman or had patients that tried that just eating lots of bananas and mangoes and spending? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I was raised Adventist and vegetarian and I just used to have, what I had was crazy hypoglycemia. So I would eat something that was just carb and very low protein or fat. And maybe three hours later, I would get so shaky that I thought I was going to die. I mean, I would just, uh, that was, that was like almost a daily thing for me. And, and that is the thing that I think really, uh, in terms of fixing my health with a more protein, lower carb diet, I think escaping those hypoglycemic episodes was the biggest thing for me. So I, I hear what you're saying, that blood sugar roller coaster, not everybody can ride that thing and feel good. <laughs> or do they need to, you know, it's just like you're saying, when you, when you have more protein and fat on board, you know, and so much less carbohydrates, you certainly are going to have a more, you know, stable blood sugar. Um, but I, you know, I'm with you that the idea of prioritizing protein, uh, I was really surprised when, you know, reading through our, um, guidelines, you have a whole chapter on sarcopenia. Uh, for old, the elderly is still the same as it is for a healthy 18 year old male, you know, the point, uh, 0.08 per kilogram. So we're telling someone who's, you know, like you said, who potentially needs more protein. We're telling them they like 44 grams a day is fine or 50 grams, you know, which is just, to me, it's just insanity. Cause if you're only getting 50 grams of protein a day, what else are you eating? Carbs and fat. Yeah. Yep. And if you look at the actual macronutrient intake in American adults age 70 to 79, it's completely disturbing. They're eating about 65 grams of protein a day, maybe 30 grams of uh, a high quality animal protein. And then, you know, 250, closer to almost 300 grams of carbs a day. It's, it's quite, uh, it's really disturbing. It's really terrible. And I know it's economic and there's just so many reasons for it, but it's, it's really bad. You're right. One question I wanted to ask both of you in regards to some of these like hyper high carbohydrate, very low protein approaches, like a fruitarian diet is, um, I know, I know that if I decided today to switch to a fruitarian diet, I would see some absolute crazy, like blood sugar spikes. If I strapped on a CGM, uh, but would that over time start to normalize as my body kind of adapted to that way of eating? Or is that something that from what you've seen or know from, from your own experience with, with clients and things like that, that yeah, maybe it normalizes a little bit, but you're still going to have just like this out of control, lack of control, I guess, of blood sugar. Well, okay. Like, so honestly, <clears throat> I spend a lot of time following these uh, fruitarian uh, approach type people. So I'm following Cyrus Kambata, is that how you pronounce his name? The, the mango man, uh, mastering diabetes fruit guy, who's basically a type one diabetic 
whose whole strategy is shaving fat as low as possible and just eating the highest carb vegan diet you can possibly stand. And um, there's a whole bunch of people out there doing the exact same thing with their type one or type two diabetes that we're doing in the low carb keto carnivore world. They're doing it with super high carb, super low fat, super plant-based diets. Like we're, we're over here in low carb, high fat, animal-based land, type one, type two diabetes, whatever. They're doing the exact bizarro world mirror opposite with super high carb, super low fat, uh, plant-based only. And you know what? It is actually way better than the standard American diet. Like you actually get lower A1Cs and you actually get lower body fat. But if you can directly compare the two, and that's what I've done is look at the, the very best people in the forums on the high carb fruitarian versus the low carb, you know, animal keto, uh, you get way lower A1Cs. Like, like the lowest they ever get is maybe 6.0 or five and a half. You get lower A1Cs on the low carb approach. You get flatter um, glucometer curves. Uh, you, I, from what I've seen, it appears you get better body composition with this low carb, higher protein, higher fat approach. So I think it's interesting what happens with these very low fat approaches. And it's something to know about. Um, and it is better than the standard American diet. And, and it also highlights the fact that it's the high carb and high fat together. That's the very, very worst. So if you go down on either of those carbs or fats, you're going to get an improvement. Um, but it, yeah, I it definitely think it's inferior. I mean, it's objectively inferior. Yeah, I would agree a hundred percent. I've never seen a quicker way to, for females specifically to decrease your performance. Actually, I shouldn't say that. If you want to increase your athletic performance for maybe three to six months, um, you know, a very high carbohydrate, you know, diet is fantastic. And, you know, but if, but if you, that's going to tank you for years, you know, I've saw that over and over when I was a dietitian, women would go vegan and they'd be, cause you're all of a sudden you're flooding your body with glucose, all this fruit, all this carbs and you feel amazing. But, you know, once again, you're getting rid of the iron, you're getting rid of the B12, you're getting rid of so many other things. And you, even if you supplement, you're getting tons and tons of anti-nutrients. So in my experience over time, you know, and, and yes, factors like body composition. Yeah. If you want to lean out, certainly you're going to lean out, you're going to lose muscle mass, you know? Um, but I think we do have to specifically for women, so many people are like, oh, I want to lose weight. It becomes about weight, weight, weight. But we also have to look at how is your mental health? How, how strong are you? Are you able to perform, you know, your activities? Because in my experience, it's just, you know, I would love to know how many of these fruitarians are going out and running for hours. I've never, I, maybe I'm wrong. I know there was a guy who, who was a fruitarian who ran a marathon with a quite a good time. Um, and we do have examples of like uh, some ultra runners who are vegan, but I don't know an example of a female athlete who's, you know, been vegan. And, you know, there was a, a documentary, the Game Changers Debunked, Zach, I know you were on. Um, that often, you know, after a year or so they, they start to do much worse because you're not getting that highly absorbable micro um, nutrients like the iron and the zinc. So I think we have to be careful of looking at things kind of like just body composition, or even like you said, A1C, I think we have to look like, how is this for your long-term mental health, physical health, you know? Cause I think, unfortunately, you know, someone will see on a YouTube, oh, this person's eating 30 bananas a day and that's so fun. And it's sugary and great. 
But man, my experience long-term, that is just a nightmare for human health. Yeah, I, I full agree here. I mean, I, I'm totally with you on that. And, and I And I do think you see a lot of people improving their diet quality and feeling better in the short term. And then we just don't know what happens long term, or we know that they're going to go start going downhill at some point. So I've seen that too, for sure. Yeah. And, but I do think it's good to recognize because I, I never want to be in a position where it's just like, I'm obviously low carb, high fat animal based, where that's all we talk about. And we never look at the other side because there, there are, like you said, some benefits. And if I'd much rather somebody do that than just be in the middle if it's just metabolic health they're looking at. So I do appreciate looking at both sides. I just get very passionate about <laughs> certain things. Yeah. One thing I was going to ask about that, and then Michelle, I think you kind of segued us into it a little bit, was just sure. this idea of certain foods being higher on a satiation, like chart that are not protein-based, so carbohydrate primary and fat primarily I guess maybe not on the, on the fat side, it might be, there's obviously gonna be some probably higher protein on average when you're, your fat and protein tend to go to go in together, unless you're really focusing in on just like, you know, pure butter or oils and things like that. But in terms of like, I guess to go, maybe go back a little bit to the PE approach, is there any indication that someone can be as successful with a 50, 50 carb fat approach, if they're focusing on say like the three to five most satiating carb sources, and then like the three to five most satiating fat sources and also hitting their protein requirements, or is there a noticeable difference when they hit their protein requirements and focus primarily on one or the other? Uh, yeah. So <clears throat> I, I think that I used to be more dogmatic and, and I thought, oh, carbs are bad. So the very best is no carbs at all ever. And so like I went through the, you know, zero carb, keto carnivore, same stage that we all went through, you know, it's like, you you start out with paleo and then you're low carb, <laughs> then you're keto and then you're carnivore and then you're raw carnivore. And then you kind of go back to something more, more moderate. So like <clears throat> there, there are a couple problems with eating no carbs at all whatsoever. First of all, humans have a very real appetite for carbohydrate. Like we have specific appetites for protein, fat, carbohydrates, and minerals. And if you're not respecting that and giving humans a certain amount of all of those things, you're probably not getting the highest satiety per calorie. So I think in the modern food environment, the secret to basically everyone needs to be thinner for a, a bunch of reasons. You need to be thinner for insulin sensitivity because everyone's over fat. You want to be thinner just so you look better. Aesthetics, you know what I mean? Body comp. Everyone's trying to recomp. Everyone wants more lean mass, lower fat mass. And the way to accomplish that is the highest satiety per calorie. And you're not going to get the highest satiety per calorie if you're eating zero carbs. So for example, if I have someone who has eaten no carbs all day long and their liver glycogen's at zero and they're just literally carb depleted. If I give them, you know, a hundred grams of, or a hundred calories of like strawberries or raspberries or um, some really low energy density carb, they're gonna get far higher satiety per calorie at that point than they would if they just ate like another pat of butter or another hundred calories from fat right? There's, it's not even going to come close. It's not even comparable. So 
you, I don't think it's optimal for most people to go to zero grams of carbohydrate because you're going to have this carbohydrate hunger and this carb appetite if you're not satisfying it and you're trying to just pull that off with more fat, you're basically going to have lower satiety per calorie. And that's why I'm, I'm more like, okay, liberalize carbs a little, just make them low energy density carbs. So you have a lot of weight and volume for your carbohydrate. You get a lot more satiety per calorie, and you'll probably have to shave your fats down a little bit at the same time. So you can stay isocaloric. But I think it's all on a U-shaped curve and you have to find that sweet spot for carbs. And it's probably not zero for the vast majority of people. There's one other problem with absolute zero carbohydrate diets. And that's that you have to basically manufacture glucose every day and you're going to be making it out of protein. So uh, if you eat your, you know, 100 grams of carbs a day, or even like 50 or 70, you're basically going to isocalorically spare that much protein, instead of having to just oxidize it. So people on zero carb diets, their protein oxidation goes way up, because they basically have to make a certain amount of glucose every day. Anyway, if you let people have that small amount of carbohydrate, that they can use for their glucose needs every day, they're, they're really going to spare all of that in protein. So a small amount of carbohydrate satisfies carbohydrate appetite, spares protein isocalorically, and there's not a lot of good reasons not to do it. If you're at zero carbs, your cortisol is always higher. Your sympathetic nervous system is higher. People are, their heart rate goes up. They have, they, uh, there's just a lot of physiologic things that happen to you in this extremely low liver glycogen state. Uh, and I don't think that staying there long-term is optimal for most people. <clears throat> and that's why I'm like, okay, target protein, uh, keep carbs low, but not zero, you know, hundred grams for a sedentary person, really nice little round number sweet spot in my opinion. And uh, then, you know, you basically filling the rest in with fat. Um, and so that's where I'm at. It's like protein is prioritized carbs. You're trying to be strategic about it. You're trying to maximize satiety per calorie. And that's a non-zero number. A quick follow-up question to that. So I, that is really interesting. I feel like I'm learning a lot. This is really cool. Um, for people, you know, I have people that have severe autoimmune issues that they want to go like on a carnivore or a purely zero carb diet for a set period of time. And I actually think that can potentially be very beneficial, just, you know, kind of almost like an elimination type thing. But like you're saying, maybe um, that is, that clearly isn't something you would do long term. But what do you think about like, a, you know, a pure carnivore or a zero carb diet just to almost like a reset or just to kind of see um, how your body's reacting specifically if you're dealing with like lots of joint pain or skin issues or things like that? Right. I think in the past I've recommended you know, if you're doing it like a major elimination diet where you're trying to cure an autoimmune disease, uh, yeah, red meat and water that, you know, that's the best elimination diet on the planet. But I, at this point, I think that fruit is fairly harmless and most people can get away with some fruit. And so now I'm like, okay, maybe a reasonable elimination diet is red meat and water and some sort of fruit. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Because most people don't have a problem with that. So I'm giving most fruit like a pass. And I think that's probably like humans really did evolve from frugivores. You, you just can't get around this basic scientific fact. 
And so I think that it's probably been a part of our diet a, a lot, a lot since forever. Um, so I, I think I'm giving fruit a bit of a pass and, and I don't in the low carb world, everyone's just brain explodes about fruit. Cause it's, you know, fruit is nature's candy. It's just it's a wet bag of sugar. But if you look at the energy density of it, it's really, really low. Like any fruit you'd actually find out in the wild uh, has such a ridiculously low energy density that you basically couldn't eat enough of that fruit to, you know, really, overeat carbohydrate you know it's almost uh, impossible to do so like you know you can eat four pounds of strawberries 12 cups of strawberries it's 100 grams of net carbs you know and like i don't think i could eat that many strawberries (laughs) yeah i was gonna say that i was like if you're targeting 100 grams of carbohydrate as kind of your sedentary baseline then you can do much worse than fruit in terms of like maximizing the I guess the space taken up in your stomach for the calorie source. Uh, in fact, like it's, it's, I always find these conversations funny because like I'll get to points of the year where my training's high enough where like I'm on the opposite end of that spectrum where it's like, I don't want foods that are going to fill my stomach up because then I'm just full all the time and never want to get around for a second run or anything like that. But, uh, it is interesting. Like if you're, if you're sedentary, if you work a desk job and you're maybe getting to the gym a couple times a week, you know, when you look at the calorie or the grams of carbohydrates you're going to get from say five apples versus, you know, a couple small candy bars, they're going to like, you'd look at them sitting on the table and you'd be, there's no way that's the same energy output, but it's basically identical. Yeah. Yeah. And that energy density piece is a huge, big deal. And, uh, you know, anytime you're like, oh, I would never eat that's too many carbs, you really have to look at the energy density and be like, oh, I'd have to eat two pounds of that to really get any considerable amount of carb. And I'm, you know, I'm just not going to do that. So I, I would, I think that I, along with a lot of people in the low carb world, really demonized any kind of fruit because it's, you know, it's just pure carbs. But, you know, like an orange, citrus has this super low energy density and you have to eat so many pounds of oranges to get any actual amount of carbohydrate. It's ridiculous. So like now I'm really, I'm backing off on my dogmatic approach to fruit and, and realizing that it's that we don't spend enough time looking at the energy density part of it and how, how low carb a thing that actually is for the weight and volume of the food involved. And it's probably not that bad. Yeah. I have a a quick thought too, because I've had a lot of people, um, you know, that are starting to, you know, add animal protein and they want to lose weight. And, you know, I add, I add fat, quite a bit of fat to my food, but I'm also running quite a bit. Correct. You know, so I do think sometimes people get a little bit excited with the added fat. And you see that sometimes when people are having like lots of like oils in their coffee or adding a lot of extra stuff. Do you think that maybe potentially people don't need to do that? Or what is your thoughts on that? Well, okay. Like, so you guys are like a whole different breed, right? (laughs) Like, like you guys are like, how am I going to get the absolute most calories to run 50 miles without destroying my GI tract and butter is awesome. And maybe even oil is awesome and anything like that becomes awesome. And, uh, I, I think that that really, um, like it's, you guys are, you guys have like Zach said, the whole opposite problem. Like, how am I going to get the highest energy density, right? The most 
carbs and fats for the least weight and volume. Um, and it's just a whole different game. But I think the average person is so incredibly sedentary that, and it's so hard to get protein without uh, at it already coming along with fat that it's, you almost have to do the opposite. Like I'm literally like, okay, start with the leanest protein you can get. Cause you can always cook it in butter and you can always cook it in oil and you can always add some, throw some cheese on top of that crab or whatever. It's so easy to add fat to it in the modern food environment that the default for me is start with the leanest protein you can get. Cause it's so trivially cheap and easy to add fat and you can always scale that up infinitely. And, uh, but the reality is you're probably so freaking sedentary that it's just that lean protein that you need and very little added fat because you've already got enough fat on your body. You know what I mean? And I'm so not talking to you guys <laughs> like well, opposite. Let's, let's actually, let's hop into the opposite side of the spectrum, not from a, a fitness standpoint, because Ted, I think anyone would consider you a very fit individual. But your approach to fitness is probably about as opposite side of the spectrum as Michelle and myself. And part of that is just because, you know, obviously people have different goals. And if you're going to run 100 miles or 50 miles, you got to get around to running eventually. But you have, I would say, amongst a few other people's really popularized, at least in my sphere, this idea of kind of minimum dosage, maximum return when it comes to strength training. Uh, You first came on my radar actually as the guy who would do like like one set to failure and then be done with it. And when I think about that, it's like what you're doing is definitely going to elicit an environment where muscle gets built or strength gets built, but you're going to burn so few calories if you're looking at, because most people, I shouldn't say most people, but a lot of people are coming into, okay, I need to do fitness as a way to burn calories, which I think is kind of maybe a bad way to maybe view it. It from a long-term standpoint, whereas you're like, I'm going to burn as few calories as I can <laughs> with this workout, but try to get as much of a, you know, a muscular muscle adaptation as possible. So what you're talking about when we're, when you're saying be mindful of the energy density fits great within that program, because you're almost setting yourself up to be able to get away with a very low time volume of exercise, uh, still get the fitness gains, but in that environment, you're not going to be trying to put a thousand calories of oil or butter on top of your, your salad or whatever it is, uh, because you just don't need it. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and so where I'm coming from is that humans are just inherently lazy and every single thing we do, we try to figure out how to do it a little bit lazier. Like how can (laughs) I do this and expend even less calories? Like, okay, remote control, I'm going to invent a remote control. So I don't have to walk to the TV. So like, we just literally, the more we do something, the more efficient we get at it. We're constantly trying to be as efficient as possible with time and energy expenditure. So we can just be ultimately lazy. And that's just the way humans are wired. It's an energy conservation strategy that's worked really well for us in the past. And now it's bad because we got so much energy in our environment. So like you said, it's, you really don't want to drive most of your calorie burn from exercise. You, you want that to come from the diet side. You really want to just eat less energy to start with. Um, I, you know, and so I, my whole exercise approach is solving the equation of maximum return on minimum investment. And by investment, I mean both time. And I'm also looking at what uh, what's known as a stimulus to fatigue ratio. 
So that when it comes to exercise, there's a stimulus to fatigue ratio, where if I do just a really hard set of push-ups, like all the way to failure as hard as I can, um, it, I might do that. I might accomplish that in about 40 seconds and it's extremely recoverable, but I'm actually going to get some sort of muscle anabolic stimulus from that. That's huge. And the, the stimulus to fatigue ratio is insanely high, uh, which is the exact, exact opposite of something like, and I hate to throw it under the bus, but like CrossFit, the whole point of CrossFit is to generate a ton of fatigue, right? But you might not get that much muscle building stimulus. I mean, okay, it is good for car. It is good cardio, right? You're definitely going to get improved cardiorespiratory fitness. And I actually like CrossFit, and that's cool and all that. But this, you're not optimizing the stimulus to fatigue ratio. So my approach is, you know, what is the very least you can do, uh, and still get a pretty good result. So it's basically maximum tension in all of your muscles for as long as you possibly can. And then you get this pretty good stimulus for like hardly any fatigue. And it is the exact opposite of ultras and <laughs> distance running, which is man, like, uh, yeah, I respect you guys so much. I've run a pretty good number of half marathons, but like, I can't run more than that or I'll just, I, I don't know. I just don't have it in me. You know what I mean? <laughs> Careful, you're going to get us to convince you to start with a marathon and go. From <laughs> <it>. <laughs> um, but then I wanted to talk to you about that, Ted, because I had like, it, the funny thing is when I look at myself and I look at other runners, sometimes it's like, you'll, you look at the training regimen and then you look at what they're doing outside of the training regimen. And there is a lot of sedentary behavior. And it's, sometimes it's necessary. It's, you know, if I go mm -hmm. for like a three, four hour run on a Saturday morning, I'm probably not going to want to go and you know, hop on a bike and pedal for an hour or something like that on top of that. So there is going to be that recovery side of the equation, um, which I find interesting because when I find myself getting to the weight room, which I try to do, you know, three, four times a week, uh, especially when I'm kind of really building up for a race to work on some strength stuff and some mobility stuff. And uh, I find that like, it's almost more appealing to kind of take your approach to the weight room because I've already invested two, three hours into running that day. I don't really want to go to the gym and just bust my ass for another hour and, you know, potentially take a workout off the table from the running side of things, uh, the, that are coming down and they're going to move the needle more on a race performance. And obviously that's going to be a unique situation, but the thing I really like about it is like what you said is like, I can go in there and if I'm doing like leg raises or something that for a core workout, you know, I can do one set of that to failure and be like, yeah, I don't want to do any more of that. <laughs> and, and, and even be a little sore the next day of times if I haven't been doing it for a while. Um, I had one kind of question with that. That's kind of a little more individual, but one thing I did notice is when I'll do, this has been so far kind of, unique to just core stuff but when I'll do like a failure like leg raises and I'll come off of that and sometimes I'll get like the worst cramp in like my abdominal muscles and I've never had that with any other body part is there something that you've seen that's unique to that or is that uh just a problem that I have as an individual that I need to try to solve uh yeah I think that's <clears throat> that's kind of a new one for me I don't really know how to respond to that I I wouldn't say, oh yeah, don't work your abs to failure because you're going to get a cramp. Like I, I haven't heard that. I don't know if that's really a thing or not. So I'm not really sure. 
I mean, it's not debilitating enough. It's been, it's not bad enough where I've done it three times now. <laughs> so it hasn't, <laughs> hasn't stopped me yet. But yeah, it was just weird because I don't, I, the reason I find it weird actually isn't the cramp itself. It's because I don't cramp hardly ever. Like I've never had a race where it was like a cramp situation that was the reason that things just completely came apart for me. Like I talked to other runners and there'll be races where like, Oh yeah, I was feeling great through mile 40. And then I had a full body cramp. And it's like, what? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's happened, but like it was, that's like my only point of reference to that type of a scenario was when I would do those uh, single, single set to failure, but it's been exclusive with core so far. So it's uh, I was just curious if you had seen anything like that, but it may just be something individual that I need to tease out too. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't really heard that before. We'll chalk it up as uh, a failed end of one, and I just have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, it, it, to the main point with that, though, I think it's like it, it is incredibly useful, I think, for folks who are getting started with this stuff, too, is kind of simplifying the process at first. And I think of it the same way I do with like my coaching clients for running, where, you know, a lot of times I think people look at my training and they think like, okay, if uh, Zach's only going to work with someone who's running hundred plus miles a week or something like that. In reality, the majority of my coaching clients are more people who are experienced in running, but maybe trying something new or looking to do some structured programming for the first time. And uh, w the biggest mistake I see with endurance athletes is getting into something and looking at what someone else is doing and trying to mimic it because they're like, okay, well, that worked for my friend here. I'm going to just do the same thing, but they're not at a point to really take on that training load yet. So they're overreaching. And then that's creating an issue down the road because it's not sustainable for where they're at. Whereas your approach, I think is almost like sustainable, or at least it's a good entry point for anyone, but it also can be incredibly difficult while you're doing it. So it's, it's almost like this perfect blend of like a beginner plan and an advanced plan all in one. And it just comes down to like what you're going to do within that tight window of time that, that you get the workout in itself. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks. And yeah, I think that it's kind of like a, it's like a bare minimum. And I'm going to say that, you know, tons more volume, would be better. So like, you know, you're going to get 80% of your results with this tiny little micro workout. And if you do tons of volume, you'll get, you know, hundred percent, but it, it starts getting exponential how much more time you have to spend for smaller and smaller, and smaller return on investment. So it's all, it's all about opportunity cost. Like, are, do you really want to spend two extra hours in the gym to get, you know, 10% better? Or would you rather spend that time, you know, running? So it's all about the highest return on investment, the sweet spot for opportunity cost, for stimulus to fatigue ratio. And uh, yeah, I, if everyone could just get in the door on this bare minimum stuff I, and then like expand from there on whatever their particular interests or passions or goals is, this is just like the minimum effective dose kind of thing. So um, I'm glad you like it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it is, it's like, I don't, I don't see anything unsustainable about it. So like, I think if someone looks at that and implements it on week one, they're not going to get to week two, week three, week four and be like, gosh, I just can't get around to that 10 minute workout anymore. <laughs> like it's a, it, it's a, I, I love that. And I love that. It's like, as you've shown, it does work. It, like obviously yeah you're not going to probably get a hundred percent of what you could out of but most people aren't going to do that anyway like most people have 
you know, a host of other hobbies, interests, work, family, friends, and things like that. And, you know, they, they want to get the workout in, but they don't, they don't need to be at hundred percent. They're not competing at the Olympics. They're, they're competing at life and they want to be fit and healthy. And if they can do that with an 80% return, then, and that's, what's going to be sustainable. 10 years of 80% returns better than one year at hundred percent every day. <laughs> or none. I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I agree with you 100%, Zach. I think that one of the biggest obstacles we have in people making changes is they just feel like they have to do a total overhaul. Like I've had people tell me like, look, I'm never going to go out and run like you. I'm like, oh, you don't need to. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm a, you know, we're, we're weird. We're total wackadoodle kind of breed as ultra runners. And, um, you know, and just being able to say like, hey, you know what, I'm going to commit 10 minutes a day. We all have 10 minutes. That's if you don't have, you know, you're listening to this podcast, you have 10 minutes, y'all spend time on Facebook, give 10 minutes, like everybody can do that, you know? And, um, and then it's saying like, what is your maximum? Like what, you know, I can lift and I can't lift as much as Zach. And I'm, I'm guessing Dr. Naaman probably lifts more than you do Zach. So giving people kind of that very basic starting point, you know, Hey, because I feel like people just feel so overwhelmed with information that, uh, they don't do anything. So just by saying, Hey, let's prioritize protein. Let's, you know, do four or five simple exercises that are going to take 10 minutes. You know, I, I just, this is just such a great starting point, Dr. Naaman. I really appreciate all your input. Oh, oh yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And, 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 and I'm all about what are the biggest rocks in the jar? You know, just find a couple little things that you can actually do. That's going to give you the biggest bang for your buck. And for me, it's protein prioritization, avoid refined carbs and fats together, and then just like max out on pushing, pulling leg exercise and do a little blast of cardio in there. And then you're done. And yeah, I'm just trying to distill it down to the the, the smallest little thing that I can give people in like 30 seconds. It's a cool message. I really like it. And I feel like it's, uh, it, it's probably why we'll have a fourth episode with you down the road, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you're willing. <laughs> sure. Awesome. Well, Ted, I think we've, we've probably taken up enough of your time. I know you're a busy guy, so we will let you get get on your way. But um, I want to thank you for you know, helping us out with one of the episodes for the Dietitian Dilemma series and give you an opportunity to plug anything you've got coming up or any social media website type stuff. I know the PE Diet is a book that folks can purchase which I'll definitely link to the show notes, but where else can people find you? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Ted Naiman, uh, Instagram, same thing. And probably the most interesting thing I've got is the book, The PE Diet, which you can get at thepediet.com. Very cool. Michelle, thanks again for uh, taking taking some of the heat off of me as a solo host and co-hosting <laughs> with this series. And where, where can people find you and find The Dietitian's Dilemma? Yeah, absolutely. So the Dietitian's Dilemma, the paperback and the ebook are both on um, Amazon right now. And you can find me on Instagram at run, eat, meet, repeat. I'm also on Twitter at Michelle Hearn RD. I do not argue or engage with mean people on Twitter. So, you know, I highly recommend you don't do that. I've just uh, finally back on Facebook. So if you're only on Facebook, you can hit me up there, but most active on Instagram. Very cool. Awesome. Thank you both for, for coming on. And I look forward to getting this one up and, and out to everyone's following HBO. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at ZachBitter.com or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. 
You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.